At Graftpinkert, I've sold a lot of machine tools to successful entrepreneurs, including my guest on today's show, Roger Duffy, owner of FNF Machine. But just a few people like him have really stood out for their outward ballsiness in business. Roger says he loves being an entrepreneur because it allows him to take risks, to dive into the unknown, whether that means trying entirely new equipment or even starting new types of manufacturing businesses, of which he has no previous experience. Today's episode is the first of a two-part interview in which we'll talk about how you can succeed in business when you're not afraid to make chaos and clean it up afterward. From Graf Pinkert, this is Swarfcast, the show for professionals in precision machining. I'm your host, Noah Graf. As listeners of this podcast know, my family company, Graf Pinkert, has been buying and selling used machine tools all over the world for the last 80 years. Every day while selling machinery, we talk to owners of machining companies who tell us they want to expand their business through acquisition. We also encounter a lot of owners of companies who are ready to exit but don't have successors. This inspired us to start a new business service. Graf Pinkert Acquisitions and Sales, in which we serve as consultants for precision machining companies who want to buy or sell their businesses. There are a lot of business brokers out there who can list your company. But for the most part, those people are generalists. They may not have even heard of precision machining. Another unique thing about working with Graf Pinkert is that we often have a personal relationship with both the potential buyer and seller putting us in a rare position to evaluate if the two parties are a good fit for each other. Go to graphpinkert.com to contact us for a consultation to see if your sales or acquisitions needs are a good fit for our services. Mention this podcast and we will give you a free tabletop valuation of your company's equipment. Click on the link in the show notes. I am very honored to be with Roger Duffy owner of FNF Machine in Elkhart, Indiana. Welcome to the show, Roger. Thank you. I have known Roger a few years now. He has bought uh, several Sugamis from Graf Pinkert. And from the time I met him, he had been talking about being an entrepreneur and having different companies. And, you know, he's an interesting person, somebody to know if you're interested <laughs> in business. So it made sense for me to interview him. Uh, just to get started, I want a quick bio. Um, how did you get into this industry? How did you get to own FNF Machine? Yeah, start from the beginning. So, um, got married very early. I was 19 years old, and oh. uh, yeah, so I, I was fortunate enough to buy a house on a land contract from a, a guy that was old enough to be my father. Uh, that I went to church with. And I, I thought I was just going to rent the house from him. And and uh, he says, well, I don't want to I don't want to rent the house to you. I want to sell it to you. I'm like, well, I'm sorry, I don't have any money. He said, if you have money to rent, you have money to buy. And I'm like, I do. So he says to me, you got to have the survey done. You got to have the title insurance done and the home inspected. I'm like, well, I don't know how to do that. He goes, you will. <laughs> when you're done, you will. And so, you know, he threw me out there and I, and I had to learn it. And consequently, when I had it surveyed, I followed these people around like a, 
puppy. And I just kept asking him all kinds of questions. At the time, I was a welder, and I worked in a fab shop welding. And uh, didn't really like the job, but I was good at it, and it was good money. And uh, I was cranking it out, but I wanted some change. So You were in Elkhart, Indiana at the time? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And they said to me, the surveyors said, hey, we're uh, you seem awfully interested in this type of work. Uh, you should put in an application. We're hiring an apprentice. I'm like, really? I'm like, uh, not even sure what that word means, but uh, I'll go put an application in. And I got the job. What kind of company was this? Land surveying. Land surveying. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had to have my house, land, the, the property surveyed. And the guy that sold it to me on a land contract told me I had to be responsible for that. So that's how I met these surveyors. And Interesting. Uh, yeah, and I and I went and applied for the job, and and I got the job. I learned it really quick. The owner was growing, and uh, he told me, he says, "Hey, you know, you've you've learned this job so fast. I'd like to hire a couple more people and let them work for you, and you can have your own crew." Oh wow, he really must have saw something in you. Yeah, I was I was uh, I adapted to it fast, and I loved the work. Um, consequently, though, I did it for two years, almost two and a half years, from being nineteen to. 21, 22 years old. The problem was I'm, I'm newly married. I got a house and I was out of town. We did, we traveled and I was out of town Monday through Friday. And that part I hated. So I knew the guy that owned FNF and I stopped at his house on the way home from work on a Friday. And I said, Hey man, do you ever think I could get a job working in your shop? He goes, well, you got any machine experience? And I'm like, what kind of I shop took, was it at the time? All brown and sharp? All brown and sharp screw machine, strictly. Yeah. We didn't even have a Bridgeport end mill. We did. It was all screw machine work. So I asked him, he said, well, if you had experience, you know, I'd probably hire you. And uh, I said, well, I took shop class in school. <laughs> and I actually, I actually won an award. And, uh, uh, the project that I did in shop class, it, it, I won first place. Anyways, didn't mean anything to him. And uh, about two weeks went by, and he had just hired a young a young fellow about my age, and he ended up having a terrible accident, and he lost his life. Whoa. And uh, Blake, the owner of FNF at the time, called me. He says, "Hey, are you still interested in that job?" I'm like, "Yeah, but I don't have any more experience." <laughs> That I had two weeks ago. Serendipity. It's yeah. Kind of a... So, yeah. So he, so he gave me a job, and and I started out doing second operation, where you just you just pick a part up and put it in the machine over and over and over. There was a pan of parts that had probably fifty thousand pieces. This little parts. I, I ran that job for about a week, and I asked him at the end of the week. I said, "Are you putting more parts in that pan?" He said, "No. Why? Why do you ask?" I said. I've worked on this for a week and I haven't put a dent in it. I said, look, man, I, I appreciate this job, but I can't do this. <laughs> if this is the job, I quit. <laughs> and he goes, oh, you'll be all right. You just, you just go back out there and keep running. Well, every once in a while, the machine would have a hiccup. And I watched him fix the machine, you know. And so as time went on, I mean, I ran this job probably for three weeks. I started working on the machine and doing what he did when it had a problem. And he caught me. He goes, what are you doing? I'm like, well, it, you know, the center drill backed off and or it got dull and I sharpened it and I'm putting it back in. He goes, how do you know how to do that? And I said, well, I watched you do it. Mm -hmm. And he, he goes, are you serious? You're, you're, 
you, you, you take that drill out and show me how you did that. So I took it out. We took the drill back to the grinder. And he takes the drill and he puts it in the grinder. And he just ruins it. He goes, now sharpen that. So I did. I sharpened it. He goes, wow, I've never had anybody do that before. And especially with no experience, you must have a, a natural talent for this. So he started showing me how to set up. So I would go out there. He go, he, he called me off the second operation job. Hey, come here. I want to show you something. He goes, you see that gear? That's gear on the drive shaft. That's first gear on stud, second gear on stud, and the worm shaft. Remember, the worm shaft's on the bottom where worms are. Worms are in the bottom. I'm like, I'm never going to learn this stuff. Okay, let me let me stop you a second. Setting up a brown and sharp, it's a bit of an art, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I still have 30 of them. And let me tell you, there isn't another machine out there, bang for the buck, that can do what a brown and sharp can do. Let me tell you. Um, there's, it's no accident that they're still around. They're a very, very efficient machine. But that's the hard part, is getting talent behind them. Today, is, is that's the art now, is getting somebody to run one. It's, it's impossible. If you get a guy and train a guy... Um, with experience, you got to keep a warm blanket on them and keep them very happy because those machines, um, that department alone probably does a million dollars a year by itself. All right. All right. Back up, back up, back up. We're going to talk about that. Go back to the story. I love this. So go back to the story. So I learned how to set up quite quickly and it was, I I will say that was a God given talent because I'm just naturally mechanical. Yeah. Uh, and I was able to learn from, the got the owner by watching him because he was a terrible teacher. He he wasn't a guy that <laughs> he he wasn't a guy that could explain what he was doing. He'd just say, "All right, I'm going to change this from a single index to a double index." And you and you, this is the Genesis wheel and you take this roller out and you put this roller here and you you have a tapered pin, you can only put it in one way and take it out one way and all right, now you can go back to what you're doing. And I was like getting little bits and pieces and I'm like, "I'm never going to learn this." But once I got into it full time, I learned it and I became very, very good at it. And then I started reading a book and it had a lot of good pictures. It's not because I'm smart, but it just had a lot of good pictures. And I learned from pictures and watching and I learned how to make layouts. I learned how to make my own cams. Within a year, within inside of a year, I was setting up by myself and making full layouts for Brown and Sharps. And the owner was so uh, enthusiastic about me that he, he sat me down uh, after I was here for probably a, a year and a half or so, and he, he says, I, I want to sell you 10% of this business. Wow. <laughs> and I'm like, I have no money. <laughs> I mean, you know what You know what money I have? You're paying me. I feel like I'm seeing a parallel with the whole surveying thing. You told him you didn't have any money. and Yeah. Well, buying the house. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, ironically, uh, the owner of the surveying company when I put my notice in to come to FNF Machine Products, he, he he said, you can't quit. I've got too much invested in you. You can't quit. You run a whole crew for me. He goes, you can't quit. He goes, he goes Roger, do you understand? I want to sell you this company. I'm like, you want to sell me the surveying company? I can't do that. He goes, what do you mean? I said, well, you went to college. I can't go to college. I barely made it out of high school. And I know you got to have a, at least a civil engineering degree to be a certified surveyor. He goes, as an owner, you hire those people. You don't have to do it. And I said, yeah, but I think I think that's great. But I didn't know how to file that. I didn't know how to file what he was telling me, that he wanted me to stay and continue to grow with his business and then sell it to me. He followed me to my car every day for two weeks. 
and begged me not to quit. And the last day he told me, he says, you're going to end up owning something. Wherever you go, you're going to end up owning something. Again, I didn't know how to, I was young. I was 22 years old. I didn't know how to put that in my head. So I go to work at FNF and within a year, I was a 10% owner. And he gave what he did. He goes, I'm going to give you a bonus. And then you're basically going to give me, I'm going to let you keep this much of it. But you're giving it back to me as part of the payment for your 10%. And that went on for five years. It took me five years to pay for the 10%. But now, you know, I'm 27 years old. We had 13 screw machines. The screw machine shop was a little pig pen, to be nice. It, It started in 1959. I came in 1986. There was four people. I was the fifth person. It was just a little shop, 13 screw machines, and about five of those screw machines were second operation machines, and the other eight were production machines. And they were in a 5,000-square-foot building, hodgepodge, here, there, and everywhere. And I seen pictures of screw machines all lined up in a line. And I thought, man, that's the coolest thing. And so I said, how do you even move these machines? His name is Blake, the owner. He goes, well, we, we take the hoist down. We had a hoist on a beam that we unloaded trucks, our our steel, and we wrap a log chain around the machine, and then we drill a hole in the floor and put a pin in it, hook the chain and the hoist to it, and we pull it across the shop. And that's how we move them, because we had no room for a forklift, and we didn't even own a forklift. So I would stay late at night without his permission, (laughs) because I asked him, I said, you think I could move that machine over here? No, leave it alone, leave it alone. And I'm like, hey, I'm part owner here. I can I can do this. So <laughs> I learned early on it was easier to get forgiveness than it was permission. So I would stay late and move like two or three machines until I got them all where I wanted them. And it took me, you know, a couple months to get it the way I, I wanted it. And then he'd come in the next morning and see these machines moved. And he goes, I told you not to move it. I said, yeah, but look at them. Man, isn't that nice? They're all lined up. Consequently, I started cleaning the shop up. In six years, I went from 13 screw machines to 32 brown and sharp screw machines in that shop. I had four lines of machines in that shop. And the reason I went to 32 machines is because every time the phone rang and there was a problem with a part, he would send me over to the customer to take care of it. Because more than likely, I ran the parts and our quality system was me. You know, I I mean, the guy that was stocking machines for me after I got them set up and me, you know, checking the parts. How many people did you have working for you? I had three ladies that did second operation and I had uh, one guy that helped stock up machines and I was teaching another guy how to set up. So just a handful. And then every time I went to a customer, by the way, we were 95% musical instrument parts. That's so cool. Yeah. And Elkhart at the time was known as the music capital of the world. I mean, there's all kinds. Yeah. All kinds of musical companies here in Elkhart, all kinds. Anyways, and they're still here, but they don't make the student line, which is the high production stuff. What what stuff in musical instruments were you making? So all the hardware on a clarinet, a flute, a trumpet, a bassoon, all the woodwind and brass wind, there's all kinds of little knobs and screws and you know, we made we made all that stuff, and we made it for all the companies here in Elkhart. So when I would go to the customer uh, for a problem or, or whatever they wanted, 
I would put my sales hat on. I'm like, hey, who's making, you know, they had a desk full of stuff and I'd pick a part out and pick it up and say, hey, who's making that for you? And he go, he, this one particular guy, he says, you want to make that? He says, all right, you go back and quote this. And I'd run back there with that part to, to Blake, you know, and I'm like, Blake, I want to quote this part. They said, quote this part and I want you to get it. And we would get it job after job after job after job. And that's how I'd say, Blake, we need another machine. He says, go buy it. So I'd go buy a machine. So wait, I, you, you cut out for a second. I just want to make sure I understood. So you'd go out there to solve some problem, and then you'd talk to them about parts they were making, and you'd come back with a new part. Yeah. Serendipity. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> and at its finest. Uh, and so what happened is, you know, it's amazing. more work. More work demanded more equipment. So yeah. every time I every time I needed another screw machine, you know, I, I couldn't keep up. I'd tell Blake, "Hey, I need another machine," and he would say, "Go, go buy it." He he just he trusted me a hundred percent at this time. I was his golden goose, laying. What year? Eggs. What? So what year is this right now? Um, now we're probably into the mid to late nineties. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the nineties, for sure. How much did Brown and Sharps cost back then? 10, 10, 20 grand? You know, it's a, it's so funny you say that because we went through a spell in the 90s where a G series Brown and Sharp could demand eight to twelve thousand dollars. And and an ultramatic would probably cost you fifteen to twenty. Thank you to everybody listening to this. It gives me a real sense of purpose, knowing that people feel they get a lot of value out of the show, enough value at least to take the time to listen. Likely some serendipitous occurrence caused you to discover Swarfcast, and I know it might get tiring with me constantly talking about serendipity, but it's just on my mind a lot lately. You might have saw a promo for the show on social media, or a coworker told you about it. In any case, if you know of somebody out there who would get some value out of the show, I'd like you to return the favor that you received once upon a time and spread the word. That's the only way others are going to find out about it. Back to the episode. I want you to time out for one second. For the people listening to this who aren't familiar with Brown and Sharps, I want the two-minute summary of how it works. A lot of the people listening to this, they operate just single spindle CNC lathes or mills or, you know, it's a screw machine. It's single spindle. I don't know. It's still a mystery to me in a way. So, I mean, a screw machine is nothing more than an automatic lathe. Anything that you can imagine making on a lathe, only instead of one part at a time, you set it up. It's got cams that run the slides and and so there's a turret slide with six to eight tools in it, six to eight positions, depending on the turret. And then there's a front slide, which a form tool can come in, a back slide, which a cutoff can come on, or, or you can form thread roll and a vertical slide for cutting off. So you can form thread roll, vertical cutoff. Simultaneous, the turret slide can come in and drill a hole, maybe thread a hole, And whatever. the turret is like perpendicular to... The, which is different from when most people think of a turret on like a CNC lathe. Right, like a slant bed comes in from the side or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's in line with the spindle. It does everything on center. Now you can have an offset tool that can come in and turn 
like a single point turn from the turret. And then it would index, say it would index, you know, to the stop and it would feed out to length, index, center drill, index, drill, index, thread, index. And while it's doing the turret work, you can come in from the front slide and the back slide and the vertical slide. So form, thread roll, cutoff while you're doing, you know. And so I have a part that went in a flute. I ran 300,000 of them a year. It was just a little threaded brass part with a 172 thread and an ID. It would feed out, index, center drill, index, drill, index, recess, the back side of the hole, index, thread, form, cutoff in three and a quarter seconds. That's what I was going to ask. Like, how fast How fast are the three and a half seconds? Uh, all that in three and a quarter seconds. You couldn't begin to do that on the fastest CNC they make, you know? It's a, it, they're quite amazing. I, I wish there was an industry out there that looked at the Brown and Sharp and said, that would be a fantastic CNC machine. Lyco. Well, Lyco is very, very close. Problem is they're $300,000 machines. But that's what it is that you're talking about, right? It is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Lyco is a beautiful machine. Beautiful machine. They have four slides. You can get them and two turrets. So they can pick off and do work on the back turret from the turret while it's doing work on the four slides. It's amazing. It's a great machine. Here's what I don't understand. You talked about it and everybody talks about it when they talk about Brown and Sharps. You have to make a new cam from scratch when you're doing a part? I mean, I just think cam's like on a normal multi-spindle and it's just, that's what's yeah. there. Yeah, it's not that hard to make a cam. However, it's, you know, that's what controls. But why? Why do you have to make a cam? I don't even know. That's what controls the slide. So on a CNC, you would give it how many, you know, how many inches a minute and how many, you would set the RPMs, you know, how many revs per minute on the turn, surface feet and uh, how many inches per minute on the push of the tool. Okay. You know, you're going to program that in with numbers and, you know, in the X and the Y and, and the Z. So on a brown and sharp, you have these fixed slides that's going to come in on the X, right? Yeah. And then on the Z from the turret, well, it, it's got to know how far to come in. So you make the, if it's a half inch and you're in 10 seconds and you figure your feed to the speeds, then your rise on the cam is going to be so many hundreds. There's a hundred hundreds in a cam. So, and you got to, it's all time. It's like building an engine. It really is. It's like building an engine. So when you build the engine, you have what you call a timing chain. So the timing chain is got this sprocket on the crank and a sprocket on the camshaft. And so there's a chain that wraps around that and it's timed so that when those pistons are firing, the valves are opening and closing in time. Well, a screw machine's the same way. You got your turret slide coming in, which is your main cam, you know, with for however many positions there is on that turret, that's how many lobes there are on the cam, the lead cam. And then the cross slide cams are just one lobe and they're the length of what allows you to get in and out without crashing it. Everything's gotta be timed. It's really cool. It really is. It's it's a it's a beautiful piece of art that has stood the test of time. What happened, though, in the 90s, early 2000s, was there was a company called AMT. ServoCam. Oh, AMT. Yeah. AMT came along, and they invented uh, what they call a ServoCam. They, they literally took the lead cam away from the brown and sharp, and they incorporated a ball screw, a programmable ball screw. 
So now the turret will go in and out all by programming it, just like a CNC. And so that was the first thing they did. And then they made it so that you can set auto trippers. The trippers is what indexes it from position to position. So you have trippers for the turret and you have trippers for the feed and the clutch. And they made that all automated. And you were pretty into this. You know, I was. When I seen it, I thought, boy, if that thing works like they said it does, I'll buy one. Well, they were like $25,000. And at the time, I had 60 screw machines. $25,000 in what, the late 90s? Uh, Early 2000s. Yeah, early 2000s. So that's like, what, $40,000 now, probably. Oh, probably. Yeah, so it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not cheap. No. So I had about, at the time I bought that machine, I had uh, probably 20 double O's, which is a half inch machine. And I probably had 40 number twos, which is half inch and up to two and three eighths through the spindle. And I bought one for a double O. I bought a servo cam and put it on the servo. I had this much training on it for my guys at the time. And at this time, I'm, I'm literally just the plant manager running the shop. I would help troubleshoot and make layouts and things like that. But I had guys that were setting up and had a lot of guys. At that time, I had probably 25 people and probably five of those guys were set up guys. And probably five of the guys were, um, you know, people that stocked up the machines and kept them fed and pulled chips and kept oil in them and all that. And so it's quite an operation, all screw machines. Because the average setup on a screw machine is four to six hours. On a brown and sharp. On a brown and sharp. And that's if, that's even if you've already ran it once. It's still going to be about four hours. If, what if it's like a family of parts? You can have a family of parts if it's, if you're going like different lengths. and But if you're changing stock size, it's a little more to it. But still, the average is four hours, no matter what. And they're saying, servo cam's saying, you can set this job up in 45 minutes. Well, that that got my attention. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I got all these setup guys and all these machines, and the setups were just killing me. I, and I thought it would give them a new fresh wind in their sail, you know. It did me. But it didn't precipitate. My guys treated that thing like a stepchild. They, they, they <laughs> didn't. They, there it sat on an island by itself, and they would not run it. In fact, I was sorry I bought it. I mean, short of me going out there and running it, it wasn't going to run. Why can't you just say this is what you're doing? I did. I did. It's, it's just not that easy sometimes. So so I... I, uh, <laughs> I believe you. Yeah, I'm, I'm a ramrod and I can I can push things through. But, you know, it's, it's like the old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink it. You know, I mean, anyways, the sales guy, they, they hired a new guy at AMT. And he actually invested in the business. And he came... Greg Knight? No, Howard Huber. Greg came from a screw machine shop, and he helped him learn the anatomy of a brown and sharp smart guy. Did a good job. But anyways, so Howard comes to my shop, and he says, Hey, I understand that you bought a servo cam. When are you ready to buy another one? I'm like, look, man, I'll sell you that one back. (laughs) And so he's like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, yeah, my guys won't run it. They just won't run it. They're just not familiar enough with it. And I can't, he goes, oh, he goes, how about I bring a guy here for a week at my expense and you give me two of your guys undivided attention. He goes, I'll have them guys fighting over that thing. I said, done. So that's exactly what happened. And 
I'm not kidding you. My guys were begging me to buy another one. That is so interesting. So what did they, how did they convince them? They trained them. They just trained them on it, got them familiar with it, showed them how easy it was. So it wasn't that your guys were just like, you know, sentimental about their old screw machines? Yeah, it was just too unknown. And uh, we just couldn't break through that shell. But when we did, it, it was exactly what he said. And I ended up buying five. I bought a package of five of them. And then I turned around and bought another package of five of them. And then I turned around and bought another package of five of them. You were probably their best customer. I I ended up being a quite large customer. And then they started to have, you know, generation one, generation two, generation three. And they really took it a long way. They really did. They made a full CNC machine. And at the time they did that, they went out of business. (laughs) And uh, it's unfortunate because... This was AMT, servo cam. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, uh, the guys that owned it, they took on Lyco. They, yeah. they, they ended up being a, a distributor for Lyco. And so now they had a real conflict. Do I sell Lyco or Brown and Sharp? You know, I mean, so, you know, it was kind of a real conflict. And then, and then they just, there was too many chiefs. There was just too many hands in the pot and they didn't know how to reinvest in what they had. And you know what? They stood the test of time. I still run them every day. I, I probably got, I think I got better than 25 of them. I think I got, on the 30 machines I have, I think all but five of them have servo on them. I, I mean, in my experience, most of the people who run Brown and Sharps don't run servo, or they have only one or two. And For the same reason, well, one, they're out of business now, so you know they're afraid to buy it. There's no support. Yeah, I've had to learn how to fix them myself and find other people that can fix them. So I've been fortunate enough to keep them going. And so that's how we roll. And you can still, there's still places that will refurbish a brown and sharp. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's quite expensive uh, to do. And you, you got to always say, do, do I put money? You know, they stopped making brown and sharps in the 80s, late 80s. You can buy one for $1,500, two grand. I don't know if it'll be good, but right, right. You you don't know what you're going to get, but if I, I can completely rebuild a brown sharp, the spindle, the transmission, everything, and you can buy repair parts for them to this day. But the time and the money, you ask yourself, do I do that or do I just invest in something with later technology that has support out there? Because the bigger you get, the less you can do personally. You got to run your business, and you can't run it from the inside. You have to be able to run it from the top so you can see everything. Uh, it's nice to be involved and on the inside because, you know, it's better than just being reported to. And I'm a hands-on guy, so I'm here. But I can't go out there and rebuild machines. I, I don't have time. This is what I was going to ask you about. I mean, I, this seems a story that you we run into all the time with people who start their own shop and particularly somebody like you that, is a natural mechanic and likes to get your hands dirty. Was it a difficult transition for you to delegate, to get to the more businessy side? Or, you know, I was, I was interviewing another guy with a company the other day and he was a robot programmer. The way he said it was, well, I'm a programmer. I used my skills to create a system for my business, kind of like programming a robot. Do you feel that way for your company? It's like you used the same muscle in your brain to create a a business that you would running a machine or or it's not like that. I would like to say that I had this ingenious plan, but I didn't. I mean, I'm just a, 
I like a lot of balls in the air. I like yeah. risk and <laughs> I, I like to take on challenges and then figure out how I'm going to do them, <laughs> which scares a lot of people. Um, I'm not afraid to invest in equipment and equipment. I've learned though in the machining world, it's so large that you really got to stick to what complements your core. Um, you can get into all kinds of things. I can get into you know welding and metal fabricating, and it's machining to a point, but it doesn't really complement my turning abilities and my milling abilities. You know, I'm a turn mill shop, and some of my machines turn and mill. <laughs> And all my Swiss, you know, I have 15 Swiss machines. They can turn right, so and have, you know. Right, you have, and I, you have, and quite, I have a few, quite a few Sugamis. Yes. We've sold Sugamis. you several. Yeah. And and we have, you know, 15 vertical mills that we do a lot of fourth axis and work on. And uh, we're getting into five axis. We're getting into aerospace. And so you have to surround yourself. And I've learned this the hard way because I used to think that I had to touch everything. I'm a natural boss, I don't have a problem delegating. I don't apologize, you know, to do my job. I'm like, hey, I need you to do this and you to do that. And and it all gets done. But I've made my share of mistakes by being too much of a ramrod. And so I've learned how to be more of a diplomat to get more out of people. And and to really, um, I used to take like some of my best machinists and turn them into bosses. And that's not necessarily the right way to go. Yeah. Just because you're good at machining doesn't mean you're good at being a, a, a boss, manager. So I've had to learn that, make sure people are in the right seat. And because when when you get the person in the right seat, they'll shine. They'll shine. And so I've had to learn, you know, like when I'm on the threshold of getting rid of somebody uh, because of my disappointment and what they're doing, I, I've had to learn to ask myself, you know, did they fail me or did I fail them? Because sometimes I fail people by not giving them what they need to to shine. That's a, that's a very astute. Uh... Well, it allows me to go to bed at night with a clean conscience because I've made my mistakes and gotten rid of people out of anger, you know, out of you know them screwing up time and time again, and then me being purely frustrated and saying, you know, this ain't working, and let them go. Uh, I've hired people back and given them second chances and put them in different positions and they've shined. And that's how I've learned to make sure that people are, are in the right spot. Cause why did you fail the first time, but now you're succeeding the second time? Well, it's because you're in a position that you understand better and I've given you better resources to understand it. So it's kind it of makes me think of the Brown and Sharp story, the, the servo Brown and Sharp story. Basically they weren't put in a, people weren't put in a position to succeed and then you did. And all of a sudden it worked. And see, I would dare say that what maybe makes me a little bit different is most people are, they fear the unknown. I run to it. I like it. I, I it definitely like seems like that. The surprise of it all. Um, and, you know, I make a mess and clean it up. I love to clean up a mess. I love to make order out of chaos. I love, I love a clean shop. I love things to be organized. I mean, I'm so OCD sometimes. At dinner, I'll line my french fries up. I'm from large to small. But the ironic thing is you're not afraid to first have it messy. To Right, right. Yeah, I'm not, I, I, I am attracted to messes because I know I can make it better. I, I'm a visionary. I like to sit. There's a, there's a guy that I can't remember his name, but I get my best ideas from staring at the wall. Mm-hmm. 
He goes, just try it. Just stare at the wall for a while. Just take three minutes. It'll seem like an eternity. Completely quiet and just stare at the wall and okay, just listen to, to your and just, and just listen to your brain. And so I'll do that. I'll stand in my shop and I'll just stare at something. And that works for you? Oh, of course it does. Yeah, it really it works it's great. Probably for the me. same kind of thing as like in being in the shower and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. You just it's just a it's just a way of concentrating on something. But yeah, I like a mess. I like a challenge. I like the unknown. I'm an entrepreneur at, at heart. Tune in in two weeks for the second part of this episode. And so I met this guy and he came over and seen my shop and right away he thought, wow, I wonder if you could make a chair. I'm like, a chair? (laughs) I don't make chairs. I make parts. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Thank you.